Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. When visionary leaders capture the imagination of a nation. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. When disciplined communicators speak truth to power. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward. Humanity has been shaped by moments in which one person approached a crowd with something important to say. I'm John Meacham, and this is It Was Said, Season 2, a creation and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, in association with the History Channel. It Was Said, Season 2. Listen and subscribe for free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. My audio may sound a little different because this is the rare episode where I'm the one traveling. Ravi, you just got back from London, right? I do. And actually, you may hear police sirens in the background here because I'm recording from my apartment, which has paper thin walls that were built like 200 years ago. So where are you? I'm in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Oh, wow. Uh, on vacation with uh, the family, with my whole side of, of our family. And ha- how long have you been so down there? We got in on Saturday. We're recording this on Monday. True's having a great time. True, since we got here, has discovered this app on his iPad that's like a DJ app where he can like, oh my as he puts it, mix beats. And <laughs> uh, and I told him that if he makes me a couple of good beats, uh, that I we would use them as transitions in this episode. So Oh, nice. People may hear that. Tell him um, if he wants to write the new Bill song for the rest of the season. I think we need a bit of a pick me up. You know, oh, write, he write and I beats. would love to compose you a Bill song. Yeah, no, yeah, I don't want you like involved. Taps. I don't want you involved. Uh, I <laughs> I hear the musical talent skips two generations. Are you uh, uh, partaking in a water sports down there by any chance? I am partaking in the sport where I am trying not to go in the water. Because it's cold and because like the water's cold and because I, I don't know if we've discussed this on the show, I'm a believer in the food chain as it currently exists. And Mm -hmm. it's why I'll never be a surfer. Sharks are dinosaurs. They go all the way back to the dinosaurs. If you point it, I'm looking out right now at a beautiful mountain range with (laughs) just foliage all the way up. And if you point it to that mountain range, which I will go up in that mountain range during this trip repeatedly. But if you pointed to it and you said there are velociraptors in that mountain range, I'd be like, 
I'm not going there, right? I'm not going to go because I respect the food chain as it exists. So why do people get in the ocean? This is an eternal debate on Bill Simmons' podcast, the bear versus shark attack. And I'm with him that uh, I'd rather have a shark attack than a bear attack. Not me. No, I I feel like I could fight off the bear. (laughs) So today we're going to be talking to a listener from Alabama. Her name is Gracie. And she wants to know how to refute DeSantis' policies to her family. The context on this, she'll explain. But really what this is is, you know, we try and do this as a public service once a year, right before the holidays, we try and have uh, some listeners on and we help coach them as to how to deal with their conservative family members at dinner over the holidays. And we figure you can use that at home as well. And then after we do that, we're going to be responding to some of your emails. All right. Gracie, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we very much appreciate you joining us and, you know, allowing us to coach you uh, in your upcoming uh, holidays with your family. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. Tell us your story. I was raised in Alabama by a pretty Republican family. Um, and when I went to college, I think a lot of my family's perspective started to shift to be a little bit more moderate or democratic, but half of my family didn't really shift at all. And yeah, now I'm in Atlanta and I'm getting my master's in public health. And there's still a little bit of tension with multiple people in my family about maybe different beliefs, specifically like my stepbrother um, lives in Florida. Since he's moved there, he's become a bit more right-leaning. And what part of Alabama are you from? Huntsville. Oh, nice. Ah, Space camp. Rocket City. Mm -hmm. I hear it's a cool town. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Everything is very space themed. Well, yeah. All right. Okay. All right. So, uh, and then you're going home for the holidays. You're going to be around the stepbrother. Mostly, it sounds like we're going to focus on the stepbrother here and what the stepbrother has to say. Let's start with the DeSantis stuff. You, you had emailed us a story. So just tell, tell the audience that story. Yeah. So I have always thought of my stepbrother and his wife as very like moderate, like very logical people. They've never been like MAGA conservatives or anything. And then we were at my house and my stepdad made a joke about Ron DeSantis. I don't even remember what it was. Um, But my stepbrother was telling us like, oh no, like we love Ron DeSantis. And like, I laughed. I thought it was a joke. I'm like, no, no, seriously. Um, And then we got into a whole conversation about At the time, it was the don't say gay bill was a big thing at the time. And my stepbrother was actually in support of it and was like, oh, like, I want to know what my kids are being taught in school. That was kind of a source of contention because my brother and I are both in the LGBTQ community. We don't really talk about it in my household, but everyone knows Um, So it was very awkward. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to leave. So I just left because I did not feel like I could have handled the conversation without getting super heated. I'm stealing what Robbie usually says, but it's always like, what's your goal for uh, this holiday dinner? Is it like get through this in a way where you can maintain these relationships? Or is it like, I want to get through it, but I also want to bring them around away from the Ron DeSantis world? Or is it just like, I just want to persuade them of some things generally? Like, where are we with our goals here? Yeah, I definitely want to preserve the relationship as best as possible. And I also just would love for them to maybe be a little more open-minded when it comes to like 
more social issues. Yeah. I would love to persuade them more, but I know that's probably unlikely. You said that you and your brother are in the LGBT community, but it's not really something that's talked about in your family. I would like to know more about that, if that's all right. Yeah, of course. My family's always kind of had a, we don't talk about serious things mentality. <laughs> so it's not, it's not necessarily just like a, we understand that they're gay or, or whatever, but we just like, like I'm thinking of my great grandmother until the day she died, she would refer to Albert, my great uncle Albert, my uncle John's husband as John's gentleman friend. Everybody understood that, you know, she knew that like that, that was not his gentleman friend, but everybody was like, all right. Because, you know, she it was like 20 years ago and she was in her 90s. And so nobody was like, look, mama, you got it. You got it. <laughs> we weren't like trying to make her be woke. All right. It was like it's not, she doesn't really need to grow. She wasn't. She was like she loved Albert. She just called him the gentleman friend. Are we talking like that or is it like a, an underlying level of bigotry? Like, where are we at here? I think the problem is with when it comes to like my steps and things, we don't really know how against it they are so we mm -hmm. don't bring it up because we don't want to have that fight that makes sense you're like hey why do i gotta it's, it's so it's on your side you're going why do i gotta subject myself to this mm -hmm. yeah okay all right yeah. the, the reason i ask is because if like one of the issues you want to persuade on is to don't say gay bill obviously it has to do with your comfort level but you know my first in instinct is to be like hey if it's very personal to you explain to them like uh, this is, affects me personally, but it doesn't sound like that's something you want to do right now. It's not that I don't want to do it. It's more that my mom is like, let's just be nice and not talk about things. Mm -hmm. If that's your mom's posture, how did it even come up before? Did you guys slip this past her? Like the DeSantis talk last time? Was she around? Yeah, she was asleep. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So- I think there are a couple of things to keep in mind here. One is like, this is a long game. There's not another election for a little while. So this is not your final at bat. So I would almost use this as like preparation for a longer fight. So part of it is Trump is going to do a lot of the work for you in terms of like people who are right leaning. Like there's going to be a Trump versus DeSantis battle. There'll probably be some other moderates. And through that back and forth, DeSantis will be way more on the hot seat than he's been thus far. So I think some cracks will emerge in his foundation that to a more right-leaning person like your stepbrother, you could use some of that, whatever comes out to help to the extent it's needed at that point, right? It's possible that DeSantis doesn't emerge from this primary. Obviously, there's always the Florida phenomenon, but that's a different question than you know two years from now presidential, right? So I think you've got some time and I would use that time to the extent you're comfortable, right? Like some of it is if he's saying things that are just genuinely against your your personal values in ways that you can't be around it. That's like an important question. So I would just I would start to just prepare for it, right? So instead of just coming in hot and saying this is what I hate about DeSantis, just asking a lot of questions about what they like about him and using that to kind of think through, all right, as information comes out in this primary, what are going to be some of the salient facts that are really going to matter? I have another question. Uh, you said that your stepbrother and his wife, you've always thought of them as like moderate. I'm curious, like why? Like, do you think they've ever voted Democratic? They're, I think, more politically eclectic. They're super into like nutrition and health stuff. Um, and they're very... Um, like Rogan-y, like Joe Rogan types. 
She's nodding. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's yes, perfect. A little more. Yeah. That's great. So they're they're persuadable voters, is your point. And if they don't like Trump, but now they're starting to like DeSantis, I mean, we know DeSantis won by a lot. So he got a lot of people like them, yeah. which makes them persuadable voters. So I agree with Ravi on the long game. But what I would see it as is like your long game responsibility here is that they not in two years, that, that they don't become someone who's just voting Republican all the way down the ticket. Yeah. Maybe look, look, maybe in two years, they still really like DeSantis. They live in Florida. He's been their governor. That's okay. What I see your job as uh, is more of like, how do I make sure they don't become a straight ticket Republican voter? And the way you describe them, they seem to like Ron DeSantis, but they've never liked Trump. They, to me, they just sound like Republicans, like moderate Republicans. And so I feel like a lot of your strategy is like, how do like maybe you don't even talk about DeSantis? Maybe you concede DeSantis to them in Florida. I mean, he's already won re-election. He's you know, if he runs for president, he's going to win Florida uh, if he's the if he's the nominee. So concede DeSantis would be the strategy for you, and just message against Republican policies generally, right? Does this make sense, Robbie? Totally agree. Yeah. Is your stepbrother one of these folks who like is going to bring stuff up to get a reaction? Um, yeah, he wouldn't bring it up just to get a reaction. Um, I don't necessarily think he filters like what he like what he's thinking about. He's going to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think it just depends on where whoever my stepdad ends up talking about because he will do stuff to get a reaction. And your step my your stepbrother. Okay, so your stepdad is more liberal, moderate. Well, it sounds like he needs. To- <laughs> I wish we had him on here too, because that's part of the issue is like, I think the right strategy when it comes to these long-term family members is to show your curiosity, like genuine curiosity, right? Because it it is an opportunity. I know it's a hard opportunity for you, given inevitably there are things people are going to say that are really anathema to your values. Like I had a conversation with my dad the other day that was very frustrating and I'm not sure one thing we've talked about on this podcast, you probably heard us say this, is a lot of times the re- curiosity is not reciprocated, and that <laughs> yeah. can be very difficult. So you just have to put on hold that frustration. I do. I, there's this saying, expect more from yourself. I constantly remind myself of this, which is, it's you know your job isn't to have this 50-50 relationship with everybody in your life. Sometimes you have to go way further than somebody in your life. So in this case- you model the curiosity in the hopes that one day they wake up and actually start asking you some questions. And I had a minor victory on this, by the way. My I went to the Jets game with my brother. It was the first time I'd seen him since Easter. When I, I if you follow the podcast, you know I hadn't spoken to him all year. And I wouldn't say it was a great. He was trying. I I really didn't. But he did start to ask me some questions. I didn't really answer them, but I could see he probably listened to our podcast that I talked about. It saying he didn't ask questions and he. You know, it was six months later, right? But he started asking me, "Hey, how's your life?" Right? Which I think That's is like a incredible. Huge so, like, the, like the passive aggressive kind of move to where you were like, he didn't ask me any questions, and then like he asked you questions, and like you know, it's because he listened to you say it somewhere else. Yeah, that's awesome, Gracie. You need yeah. to get a podcast. Yeah, you, you need, get a podcast. Actually, wait, wait, you're doing it, so you need to send a link to this show yeah. to your stepbrother, <laughs> yeah. and that will prepare him. This is perfect. Enough about the okay. So, so my point being, start to ask him a lot of questions. 
show genuine curiosity if you can handle it, right? It's like sometimes they're just things people say that they don't have a right she, to. She can do it. She's you're yeah. getting a master's in public health. Yeah. You're, you know, you're used to like doing queries uh, of different things and investigating ideas. And I think like you can learn something in the process, right? A good example is like Zeldin versus Hochul in New York. I was, there's no chance I was going to vote for Zeldin given his January 6th stuff and you know, his, his love affair with Trump. But in talking to people in my life who supported Zeldin, I learned a lot about their frustrations about around things like government not working, how expensive things in New York are, policing issues and how they saw it. And through the process, there were a lot of things they were saying I agree with and that were frustrations that I had with the Democratic Party. It didn't lead me to say I'm Zeldin, but I think if you have these conversations with people and you're like, all right, yeah, like I get that. There's like these things where you know, I wish the Democrats were better at this. I wish that. And then you follow up at some point, maybe not in the same conversation. You say, yeah, I hear you on these other things. But the reason why I can't go to DeSantis is because there are these two or three things that he has done and does that he believes in that I just can't get behind. And when I weigh those against the things that I think he might be doing okay, they just don't outweigh. And I think that sometimes can help bring people along. Be like, okay, this person took some time to really hear me out. All right, Gracie, we've talked a lot. What have we not covered? Like, what what questions are you still going into this with? I think something that I really struggle with talking to them about is definitely a bunch of, like, school stuff, um, because that's one of the issues that they're more interested in because they have kids. I don't, so (laughs) it's not something I talk about a lot or think about a lot. I just know that that's going to be something they're going to bring up because I think they like the... DeSantis beliefs on school um, and stuff like that. Yep. So that's something I'm kind of more worried about talking about. Would you say the the don't say gay bill is like the dominant part of the conversation or is there other stuff around schools that is coming up? I know they like school choice and they like that schools weren't closed and like masking. That's not something that they really were a fan of. So like the fact that they didn't have to deal with that in Florida, mm-hmm. they really loved. Yeah, there was a study, I'm sure you saw it, that just came out. I, like most people, have my own line on when I thought the masks were appropriate and weren't and the closures were appropriate and not. And I think I'm kind of with Jason that you're a public health person, so this may be like a non-fire issue for you. But I think like to the extent you're like, all right, we're not going to be masking kids a year from now so that this might not be the the pitch I swing at. I don't know, Jason, what do you think? I think... Particularly if they became DeSantis fans during the pandemic, I think that it's probably, it's not just that it it is a potentially insurmountable hill for you to climb. It's that I think engaging them on the very issues that brought them to further to the right in the first place might make it more difficult for you to engage them on the other issues where you want to engage them. And I think uh, part of that is if a lot of what their current political views are motivated by is the fact that they have kids in school. I think you're right to look at, to see the limitations of you not being a parent and to say, you know what, I'm probably not going to be able to persuade them because I I don't have enough in common with their experience. As a result, what I would do uh, is I would continue to work on the areas outside of just the school issues because it's not like these issues are always front and center. Right now, they're they're voting in a way that's very motivated by their experience as parents. Well, as we get further away from issues like masking in schools, as they potentially become, you know, more satisfied with their own 
schools in their area. There's going to be other issues that become bigger issues that become uh, higher priorities for them. So let's say the economy becomes a higher priority in two years to them than it is right now. Well, if you've been putting in the work over this holiday dinner and the next holiday dinner and any in-between family gatherings, well, that might really pay dividends then. I also say like politicians have a way of disappointing people. And I think part of your job is not to untether them from DeSantis or the Republicans right now, but to weaken that bond to the extent you can by not making it their identity, right? Because mm, if they're showing point. up, yeah, if they're showing up to these family gatherings and like, all right, it's time for me to be the DeSantis person. And I think this is true of anybody. So if you're in a CrossFit gym with somebody or you're friends with somebody, it's like your job when you're with people off cycle, I would say <laughs> this is off cycle, is to strengthen those bonds so that when you have to go in for the, not, this is, I'm like, I sound like a sociopath. Like the only reason why we're, we're like, my family is going to hate this explanation, but like, no, I'm, I'm with you. Like, yeah. oh, oh, <laughs> Your job is to strengthen those bonds so that when it matters, like that identity matters more than their political identity. And I think the problem we have in this country right now is that the political identities are subsuming everything else. That's my opinion. Gracie, have you found this at all helpful? Yes, definitely. I think it's good to remind me to just lay like groundwork and, you know, it is off cycle for most of the country besides Georgia. And it's just good. Play the long game. Yeah. And also don't put so much pressure on yourself to like to do it all at once. You know, it's like you don't want to be going up there trying to hit a five run home run every time. You know, you got to singles and doubles are great. All right. Well, thank you for uh, doing this with us. I think it will be helpful to a lot of people. And hopefully also to you. So thanks for, for joining us, Gracie. Yeah, thank you all so much for having me on. What up, Tom? Here in the United States, we've just seen how important climate change is to Gen Z. And seeing this outcome in the midterms and the energy around fighting climate change is why I'm so excited about our partner, REN. REN is a website where you can calculate your carbon footprint, then offset it by funding projects that plant trees, protect rainforests, and remove carbon dioxide from the sky. Signing up for REN is an easy way to start actually doing something about the climate crisis. And by answering a few questions about your lifestyle on REN, you could find out your carbon footprint and how you could reduce it. And no one can reduce their carbon footprint to zero so you can offset what you have left after reducing it. Once you sign up to make a monthly contribution to offset your carbon footprint, you receive monthly updates from the tree planting, rainforest protection, and carbon removal projects you support. You get to see the trees you planted and what your money is spent on. It will take a lot to end the climate crisis. And you can start helping today by learning more on ren.co slash majority54. That's ren, W-R-E-N, dot co slash majority 54. If you sign up using our link and tell Ren we sent you, Ren will plant 10 extra trees in your name. That's Ren.co slash majority 54 to get started. Okay. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Unfortunately, life doesn't come with a user manual. So when it's not working for you, it is normal to feel stuck. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, or becoming a parent. And maybe you've never been to therapy. Maybe you're like intimidated by it. Maybe you're intimidated by it in the same natural way that someone who's never voted is intimidated by the process. Well, I think if we were all able to vote on our phones, which wouldn't be secure, so we can't do that yet, but every but a lot more people would vote. And in this way, if you're able to go to therapy on your phone or on your computer, uh, then it's probably more accessible and it's easier for you to start. And that's where BetterHelp comes in. As the world's largest therapy service, they've matched 
3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. Couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash M54. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash M54. Here we go in the mailbag. Jason and Robbie, I'm a teacher in rural Southern Colorado. I live in Lauren Boebert's congressional district. I carpooled to work with our high school history teacher, Tim, a 15-year Army veteran who served in Iraq. He doesn't want to vote just for what he thinks is basically the, quote, lesser of two evils. He thinks Trumpism is only a symptom of a deeper cause, and most Democrats are just out for themselves. Not sure if there's anything I can do to convince this guy that his cynicism really just ends up helping the far right. Take care, Ben. You know, the rest of this email is mostly him explaining that what he's trying to figure out is how to motivate this uh, co-worker who's, who's pretty cynical and doesn't vote. Uh, he, or he suspects his friend didn't vote as a result in the midterm. I mean, obviously, the very first thing I would mention is, hey, you know, Lauren Boebert is currently going through a recount by, and she won by like 500 votes. So if there's 500 of you in, in town then uh, and you vote, well, then all of a sudden Adam Frisch is, is a member of Congress. Um, but maybe that's not enough. Ravi, I think I've heard you do the uh, public transportation analogy, which is when people are like, you know, this person doesn't fully represent everything I stand for and neither does the other person. So I'm not going to vote. The analogy that I've heard that I really like is this isn't about uh, driving your car to a place. This is about like taking the bus. And when you take the bus, you're not expecting to pull up right in front of the door of the place where you're going. When you take the bus, you're like, hey, I'm trying to choose the bus that's going to get me closest to my location. So I don't have to walk as far. Right. And, And I think to me, that's a pretty good analogy for folks like this. Because, yeah, he's he's saying uh, it's this and it's this. I don't like either one. But it's like he clearly likes one of them more than the other. I mean, another part of the email I, we didn't read was this guy really knows his history. He's a history teacher. He thinks most Democrats aren't fighting hard enough or don't truly want to change an unjust economic system. So this guy is like he's a liberal. And so I think I think that's the argument you got to make. It's like, hey, man, we're, we're taking the bus here. The way I talk to certain people, especially young people, is that politics isn't bespoke. Right. It's not like you're going to get this person where you line up 50 issues and they're going to be 50 out of 50. You're, you're lucky mm. if you can get 30 out of 50 sometimes, especially if you're kind of an eclectic thinker. And cynicism can be lazy. I know this is not persuasive, but this is just like a starting point to think about it. You know, I think Colbert was the person who said that cynicism masquerades as wisdom. Some people are like, oh, yeah, everybody's a crook. Right. That, and it's like, all right, that's easy to say. But then just doing nothing isn't going to solve anything. And a lot of times it's like like the act of participating helps weed out the crooks. And if, if you're picking the less crooked of the two crooks, that means the next election, there's less of an incentive to be a crook. You know, you know what I'm saying? I agree. I mean, he's a history teacher. This seems like a pretty, uh, yeah. a pretty syllable point. Also, to be honest, Ben, like if you really want to make sure uh, that – this guy and the other teachers in your school vote, I would make a big deal out of on election days showing up with your I voted sticker and being like, we should all talk to the kids about it. We should all yeah. show them our I voted stickers. <laughs> like you should just like, I don't know, make it where they better go get an I voted sticker. Let's talk about alpha males because 
We need another episode about this. This is from Peter. He said, I thought you might be interested to see the literature demonstrating that the whole concept of alpha males has been debunked. Observations of actual wolf interactions in nature totally debunk the theory. Nick Adams has it completely backward. To the extent wild wolves offer any insight into power dynamics, it's only to demonstrate that the truly successful male is the one who enjoys hanging out with his mate and helping to raise their kids. Well, and I want to go back and read specifically the science here. He said, in the wild, wolf packs are led by a pair of mates. There are no violent conflicts and no need for demonstrations of strength or power because the packs tend to be family groups led by the parents. As young males mature, they leave to start their own packs. Well, that's actually also how it literally works for humans, right? Like as much as I don't want my son and my daughter to ever leave my house, my wife assures me that there's nothing I can do to stop it. And so this makes sense to me. Okay, so I like this argument. I'm not sure it's going to be the most persuasive argument. (laughs) Although although I think wolves, wolves are like, people like the idea of like, I'm like a wolf. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I feel like we could we could counter this with the wolf science. But it also I think it just reinforces what we were saying about ourselves. And that makes us feel good. So thank you to Peter. Yeah, there's one thing I heard recently that that reinforces this. I heard an interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the historian who wrote Sapiens, and I think he just wrote a children's book, which sounds really awesome. And he was talking about, you know, what separates humans and Homo sapiens even from other types of similar beings that existed at the time, like Neanderthals. And he said it's our capacity for cooperation. He said that there's even this myth that the law of the jungle is that everybody's out to get each other and an eye for an eye and I need to look out for myself. Where he said that if you go back far enough, there's not a lot of evidence that a lot of these early civilizations even went to war. And he says that if you look at archaeological dig sites and all that, you don't see these mass collections of people that indicate that there were these mega violent conflicts. And that actually what separated us and allow us to be successful is our capacity to cooperate in big cities and to differentiate and specialize and trust that the other person's going to learn to be a surgeon while I learn to you know, become a plumber. And this cooperation is actually central to who we are, not this sort of sense that we're all out to get each other. What up, Don? Yeah, so this next one is from Daniel who says, I live in Florida, and one of the things that I've noticed is that the word socialism or socialist is a non-starter for immigrants who came from countries in South America or Asia. I wonder if we're not missing an opportunity to rebrand liberal policies as something like capitalism plus. We are, in fact, here for capitalism, but we also recognize that the free market isn't a good way to distribute infrastructure, education, defense, and healthcare. What say you, Jason? I think this is awesome. Like I keep trying in my head as as you were reading this, I was thinking, well, maybe there's something better than capitalism plus. Maybe there is. Maybe it's like smart capitalism or whatever. Mm. But I really, I, I think people like they like a plus. People like yeah. a plus on something. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, the question is like, can you bring the left around? This to me is very on target with Elizabeth Warren's brand of politics. She's frequently saying that her policies are not anti-capitalism, that her policies are about saving capitalism from itself and saving capitalism for our future. So I feel like that's kind of where this is going. What do you think? I agree. I was trying to think, well, capitalism with a floor or something like that, but it doesn't quite, I I am almost a believer of capitalism with a floor and a ceiling. (laughs) It's like, I don't, and I think my ceiling isn't that low. Like, I think we, I'm not like, 
one of these people who thinks every billionaire, like there's a saying, like every billionaire is a policy failure. I'm not, I don't lay awake yeah, don't at night. I don't believe that either. I don't, I don't lay awake at night worrying about billionaires one way or the other. I think that there's a lot of attention on that. And I think that it, it almost is a moral excuse for people like us who do well, who much more should be asked of us too. Like, I think that those of us who are, who are doing fine have a lot of obligations too. But I like capitalism. Plus, I think I've heard Bill Maher talk about that before, use that term. As a nonprofit executive, the only time I lose sleep about billionaires is when I think, do I know enough billionaires? I need to raise money. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Got to raise money for this nonprofit. But um, yeah, I wonder if we, if, if this is like you borrow a page from George W. Bush's 2000 campaign and, and like what we're for is compassionate capitalism. Yes. Or, yeah. uh, you know, oh, I like or something. That. Yeah, yeah, because it's the because it's the opposite of crony capitalism. Oh, I like compassionate capitalism. Trademark that. You know, there's this. Yeah, the crony capitalism. What gets me is, is we have capitalism in this country on the way up and socialism on the way down, right? Like the bailouts and all the supports that these people get, writing things off your taxes. Like the idea that these people who invested in FTX or you know, gave money to Musk to blow on his Twitter adventure and they could just write that down and it just becomes something that actually becomes an asset to them because it allows them to just cook their books this year and pay less taxes. Like the, all these little ways in which people have all this support on the way down and aren't allowed to fail to me, mm -hmm. like that's a whole thing too. And obviously Warren talks a lot about that. Kind capitalism versus crony capitalism. Compassionate capitalism I like versus compassionate crony capitalism. capitalism. I like compassionate yeah. capitalism because I think most reasonable people think that a kid growing up in Mississippi should get Medicaid. I think right. most people agree. And you could start with that. You could say, well, should they have a, a decent school to go to? They all agree. Should there be roads and bridges that work and are safe? Yes. Like you start to go down the list and it's like, all right, we're, we're getting somewhere. With the holidays around the corner, you might be wondering how you're going to be able to make ends meet and shower your loved ones with gifts. Dave can help you get out of a pinch so you can enjoy the holiday season. It's a banking app that could help you get up to $500 instantly with extra cash. With Dave, there's no interest, late fees, or credit checks. That's more money to buy those last-minute gifts or catch up on bills without having to wait for your next paycheck. You could finally tackle those expenses that have been stressing you out without any hangups. Millions of people have already downloaded the Dave app to get the financial relief they need with extra cash. Download the Dave app from the App Store right now or go to dave.com. Sign up for an extra cash account and get up to $500 instantly. What a deal. For terms and conditions, go to dave.com slash legal. Instant transfer fees apply. Banking provided by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Well, there's this great new podcast called Democracy Decoded, and it's a podcast by the Campaign Legal Center. So the reason I'm so excited about this, in addition to it being a great podcast, is I took election law at Georgetown Law School from this guy named Jerry Hebert, who's one of the founders of the Campaign Legal Center, uh, and made me love election law. And it's a big part of why I became Secretary of State. And now they got this podcast. And so it's probably going to be even better than what was my favorite class in law school. 
So Democracy Decoded examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the U.S. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks how we can make our voting system more inclusive because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. What up, Don? All right, this is from Andy, and he's from Kansas City. Great city, questionable franchise in the game of American football. My words, of course. This is what he said. He said he sent out about Josh Hawley. He sent out a tweet the other day when Dems retained control of the Senate that said, quote, the old party is dead, time to bury it, end quote. And he asks, how does Missouri flip Holly's seat in 2024? I mean, the obvious joke here is I know a great candidate, but I don't do that to you. What's the other, yeah. what, what other uh, ways can we do this? Uh, well, first, let's talk about this, uh, this tweet. Uh, I thought this tweet was hilarious. Um, this was because it was as soon as it was clear that the Republicans had pretty well lost uh, the election, Holly was immediately like distancing himself from this, like it was a crowd rushing into the Capitol. Like he was just like, he was trying to get away from it so fast. And so his argument was uh, that it was because of the Republican Party's uh, positions on, you know, I don't remember what it was, but it was everything except Dobbs and voter suppression, right? And democracy. It was all the other stuff that he said were the problem, which prompted me and a lot of other people to take that meme of Tim Robinson in the hot dog uh, guy costume where he's like, we got to find the guy who did this. And for those who don't know the origin of that meme, it's a great skit where a guy wearing a hot dog costume crashed his car into like a store and everybody's like, who did this? And he's standing there and he's like, yeah, we got to find the guy who did this. So it was Holly. Holly crashed the thing. Holly's the one who was like, I will not vote or even consider voting for a single Supreme Court nominee who does not publicly say they will overturn Roe. Uh, he's the one who, you know, he's been in favor of all this anti-democracy stuff. And now he's like, well, somebody wrecked the Republican Party. we got to find the guy who did this. <laughs> and it's clearly Josh Hawley. As to uh, how we flip the seat, look, nobody wants to hear this, but I'm not going to run. Do I think I could win? Yeah. Do I think I'd definitely win? No. It's like a coin flip. Like, you know, I think I, if I went all out, I think I'd have a shot at it. I personally don't want the job. As to how you flip the seat, we've got to stop looking at this stuff two years at a time, like election cycle by election cycle. This happens in Missouri and in states like Missouri every uh, election cycle where people come to me, they come to Claire McCaskill or whoever the me or the Claire McCaskill of their state is, and they do some version of, you know, you have to run because it's the only way we have a chance to win. And my thing is, no, we have to put the infrastructure in place so that you don't need a candidate who everybody already knows in order to win a race. Look at Warnock and Ossoff uh, two years ago in Georgia. It's the work that Stacey Abrams and everybody else in Georgia did for years and years that made it where, uh, you know, somebody like Reverend Warnock is an incredible candidate, but he wasn't a household name. John Ossoff was a better known candidate but like, and I, John's a good friend and he's a good campaigner and everything. But like, let's be real. If you were drawing up on paper who you were going to go recruit to run for the U.S. Senate in Georgia, it probably wouldn't be a liberal Jewish documentarian. Like, mm -hmm. you know, 
it turns out he's it was exactly the right guy, but it's not who you would have recruited. But the reason that those two candidates, one who was lesser known, one who was better known, but was more polarizing because of his races in the past, were able to win is because of the work people had put in. North Carolina was a race that nobody thought was ever winnable in anything years ago. Colorado used to be a red state, and now it's practically blue almost. And what has happened in those periods of time, and I remember because I saw it, was they put together a focused campaign and built the infrastructure over the course of years. My point is, uh, in, in response to Andy's question, yeah, it's possible to beat Josh Hawley in two years, but the focus should be on beating Josh Hawley in what, 12 years uh, mm-hmm. or whoever it's going to be. Like That's how you win is you build a long-term program. I'm not an expert on Missouri like you, but I can only just generalize and say, you know, Lee Zeldin almost beat Kathy Hochul in New York State, uh, which is as liberal as a state can get. So the flip side is also possible. You know, John Tester won Montana, Sherrod Brown won Ohio. Like great candidates can run against extremely flawed candidates, especially when those flawed candidates are fighting with other members of their party, which Holly has leaned into the punches here a little bit, has made quite a bunch, you know, quite a few enemies. And the sort of elder states people of Missouri, like Danceforth and all that, who may be full of shit but are like starting to realize that they back the wrong guy, they have an ax to grind. And so the question is, you make enough enemies and fight enough battles internal to your party. Maybe you get the wrong primary challenger and then the, a really good candidate comes out of the Democratic primary field. And that's a recipe for an upset. Whoever runs against Josh Howey, whoever is the nominee in 2024, is going to raise so much money before they get out of bed on the day or the day after the primary. Like right. it's just like Beto running in, in 18 against Cruz. There are villains out there in American politics. There, there are WWE style heels and Josh Hawley has decided to make himself one. So, you know, it can be competitive. Absolutely. Andy, the answer is start investing now in creating the messaging and the infrastructure. There is a group called Mo Wins in Missouri led by Laura Granich and assisted by people like Stephen Weber, who folks will know is uh, my close friend who's been on the show before. And he's very involved with it as a political director for AFL-CIO in the state. There are groups who are trying to build this um, progressive infrastructure for the long term, and uh, I would get involved with them. Before we finish up, we wanted to address the tragic shooting in Colorado a couple of different ways. First, from a political standpoint, I've noticed that because it is yet another AR-15 attack, the debate about assault weapons uh, is sort of taking front and center right now uh, in our culture. For anybody who's interested, I reposted on Twitter uh, what I had put up in the past. There's a clip from this show on there and also a thread that I had done in the past about how to explain why, yes, an AR-15 is an assault weapon. Yes, it is a weapon of war, because that's probably a conversation a lot of you are having right now. But we didn't want to just talk about the politics of it. So, Robbie, go ahead. Obviously, like this is a huge tragedy. One thing we wanted to make sure we do during this holiday season is direct you to where you could donate. So uh, there's this organization called the Colorado Healing Fund, which supports victims of mass shootings. We'll put a link in the show notes. And that's one of, I imagine, perhaps many organizations that are doing good work around these types of tragedies. As you can see, we don't, you know, when we ask you to call in and to write in, 
you know, you probably after a while are like, yeah, well, well we call and we write in and we don't hear anything from you. As you can see, we got through a bunch of emails today. Uh, so next time it could be yours. 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. You can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, E.D. Allard, Adeso Agbenail, and Sarah Schleed. Theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.